Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. I'm really excited for today's podcast. Um, calling in from Zoom is my pod calling in via Zoom. Zoom isn't a location, it's a medium to connect people, <laughs> is my friend Andrea Lystrup. Welcome to the podcast, Andrea. Thank you so much for having me. Will you spell your last name for our listeners? It's L-Y's in Yankee. S-T-R-U-P. And Andrea is a marriage and license, marriage and family therapist. And I became aware of her because of a podcast she did with Leading Saints. It's just a terrific podcast. And I thought I would love to have Andrea share her insights um, from a church perspective, from a clinical perspective with our, for our listeners. It was deeply helpful for me. But um, Andrea's prepared five questions that will frame up this podcast. Would you go ahead and just share the five questions so our listeners kind of get dialed into what we'll be discussing? Yes. The first one is, if there was one thing I could do to improve the way we try to create Zion in our church, what would that be? The second question is, what do you think gets in our way of accessing and demonstrating love for our fellow men? The third question is, how do you think we should balance the tension between law and love? The fourth question is, how do you work through the pain when something said at church is hurtful? The fifth question, I think that's where I'm at, is how can your trauma or pain interfere with your own relationship to God and your ability to access your spirituality? Great questions, and I love that we're talking about these. Will you, before we get into those, share with our listeners just your station in life, uh, marital status, where you got your education, what you do professionally? Yes. So I am a mom. I have three young boys. They're six months, almost four and five years old. And I am a licensed marriage and family therapist. I did my training at the University of Maryland in their couple and family therapy program. Um, So I have a love for the East Coast and all of the greenery there. And now I'm enjoying the desert and my home life, professional life. And I also serve in my stake as the stake sister support specialist, which is kind of a made up calling for someone who is seeking to help um, advocate for victims of victims of abuse or other people who otherwise feel marginalized. How long have you been community. in how long have you been in that calling? Um, a year and a half. That's really cool. Yeah. Um, let's just uh, tell our listeners how you got to Tucson. My husband is in the Air Force, so. We've moved around a lot. We um, met in college and then moved to the East Coast, moved to the West Coast, moved back to the East Coast. And now um, he's working um, with the, he's a sports medicine doctor with the unit at davis Monthan. So we love it here. Hopefully we can stay for a long time. And tell our listeners where you grew up. I grew up in Las Vegas, Nevada. And um, let's just get in these questions. So I'm going to read them. And... Um, I'm just going to let you share with our listeners um, insights and to answer these questions. Question number one, listeners, if you could change one thing to improve the way we try to create Zion within our church, what would it be? So I think sometimes we get very single tracked on how we can build faith in our communities. What are the how-to steps of how to read your scriptures or prayer or just kind of the different Sunday school answers. Or sometimes we focus a lot on what needs to happen next in the covenant path. And all of those things are really important. But I think sometimes we lose sight of the one thing that we really do have a lot of control over. And that's our relationships with people. Like We can't control whether or not people um, make the steps that we want them to make in their life. We can't control whether they repent. We can't control the background that they're bringing to things that make their life harder than other people. Like We don't have control over any of that. But we do have a lot of control over the quality of relationships that we build with people. And I think sometimes we can lose sight of that. And I do think our church leaders recognize the value of that. And I was particularly touched by the direction that our church um, started going in April of 2018 when they shifted from home and visiting teaching to ministering. And there was a lot of really good talks that were given by President Nelson and Elder Holland and Sister Bingham about how they want to see the direction of the church shift towards ministering the way that the Savior would. And um, Elder Holland 
did a quote at the time where he said that as the as Christ is preparing to leave um, the twelve disciples after when he would be gone, instead of focusing on all the administrative stuff that he wanted them to do, he left them with just one reminder. And it was, remember, love one another as I have loved you. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. And I love that because I love how it, like the only thing that you need to ask yourself to know whether you are a disciple of Christ or not is if you're loving one another. Like That's what Christ left us with. And so I definitely think the intent and the desire for our church leadership and the direction of the church is to unlock the power of relationships. But oftentimes I think we fall short in implementing that effectively. Talk more. I love that. Talk more if you want to about unlock the power of unlocking relationships. Yeah. So I think oftentimes we look at relationships as just more focused on persuasion. Like if I tell you to do this, then because we have a good relationship, you'll listen to me and you'll do what I say. But often I think what we need to think about relationships is like a Chinese finger trap. And if you are trying to say, here, come unto Christ this way, build your testimony this way, oftentimes that pressure is making things worse and it makes people dig further in or feel like they're being pushed in a direction that they aren't comfortable with. But if you come closer to them and you show them unconditional love and support and you kind of bring yourself closer to them, then it's like the Chinese finger trap loosens and all of a sudden they have the ability to exercise their agency and choose to come closer to you. And I also think there's a lot... Every time you prioritize influence over your relationship, you diminish the quality of your relationship. And I think we need to really prioritize building up our relationship bank accounts as much as we can and just showing people as much love and support as we can. And I think sometimes there are relationship skills that we don't know how to use. That's one of the things that I love about my career field is I'm predominantly do marriage counseling. And so that's kind of what I'm good at is seeing conflict in a marriage and then bringing people closer together and knowing what works and what doesn't work. And so I think that is something that we, that is an ingredient that we don't talk enough about in our church is how to have these kind of building conversations when things are hard. Um, I like that. Talk about, you said something when you've sort of used influence on the relationship, just expand on that a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of times we want to our relationships to make people become more like us instead of valuing the differences that are inherent in the relationship. And that's one of the things I love about the body of Christ analogy is that it isn't that the eyes are more important than the ears or the hands are more important than the feet. It's that our differences is what makes us so strong. And so I think influence is when you try to change people. And I think love and prioritizing the strength of the relationship is where you accept people where they are. And I think that's how you really show people that you value them and that you are trying to live the teachings above the body of Christ. That's a really good segment. Do you want to share anything more about this first question? I, mean, I think that pretty much sums it up. And just, I love love so much. I mean, I've just devoted my life to trying to help people access love in more effective ways. Um, here's question two, listeners. What do you, sometimes it's hard for me to read. <laughs> I've always had a hard time listeners just reading in church or answering a question, but what do you think gets in the way of accessing and demonstrating that love one for another? I think it's really easy to love people who are similar to you. It's really easy to love people when they agree with you or when they're validating you or they reinforce your belief system. And so I think when those things align, I do think there's a lot of great ministering that goes on in the church. And I think for people that feel like they fit the mold, it's hard to see why church would be anything but wonderful because you are receiving such abundance of Christ-like love and ministering. But I think sometimes you're short-sighted when you think that that's everybody's experience because the reality is when people don't reinforce our beliefs and they aren't similar enough to us, the way that we try to love them isn't very effective. And I think um, one of the most common things that we do that interferes with our ability to love people is we seek to correct them too soon. And I, I've heard a lot of people talk about the scripture that the Lord loveth he whom he chasteneth. And I, 
and I'm not saying that there's never room for correction. Like there's, we want people to come unto Christ. We want people to follow his commandments. Like we want people to improve and like live the doctrine of eternal progression. Like we want people to do good things in their life and to make changes as appropriate. However, nobody knows your flaws better than yourself. And ultimately, the more you accept people as they are, you are giving them a support and a resource that they can then draw from and they can use their agency to call upon God and feel the comfort of the savior and receive for themselves the things that they need to change. And they can also receive personal inspiration for themselves about what they can do to improve their life. And their ideas will be infinitely better than your ideas are for them. And so I think when we look at people as something that we need to correct, or a problem to be solved or someone to be fixed, we are almost like putting an umbrella over their ability to look upward and try to connect with Heavenly Father and see what He would have them do instead. And we don't want to be an umbrella or um, someone who's blocking the access to someone else's personal revelation or relationship with God and our Savior. It's interesting. I wrote down a phrase as you were talking. Um, um, correct to sh- correct too soon and that w- it's it's hard as a parent or as a local leader or whatever role if we have sort of stewardship responsibility or we're in a position of sort of teaching or training to um go slow mm-hmm. um, but i like what you said that most people know what's what is right or wrong they often just need someone in their life to love them mm-hmm. and as they feel that love then they seem to be feel safe opening up and 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 sort of engaging people in the realities of their situation and they become a little more open if they're willing for those teachable moments or just people that'll love them as they're learning to make their way. Mm-hmm. You brought up a really good point about stewardship. I think the more stewardship you feel, the more important, the more, not even important, but the more it would make sense for you to try and engage in some sort of correction. But I think one of the problems with our church culture is often we're trying to correct people that aren't even in our stewardship. And I also like what you said about this dynamic of like going too slow or, um, or going too quickly. And I, it reminds me of a time when I was a young therapist in training and my advisor talked to me and she said, Andrea, like you try to move people too quickly and it slows you down. And there's this tension in, I mean, therapy is all about the process of creating change. And there is this natural tension that the more you push people or the faster you try to get people to change, the more they resist. Whereas if you meet them where they are and you love them where they are and you empathize and you show vulnerability and you just kind of create the space for them to just be okay with who they are, that's when they are able to make change much faster. And so I think sometimes we get impatient with wanting our loved ones to stop doing things that we see as hurtful. But in reality, our impatience is just dragging out the process even longer. And that takes a lot of discipline to do that. Um, Yeah, And I think it's kind of changing your mindset of looking at someone like Thomas S. Monson said, treat people like a person to be loved rather than a problem to be solved. And I actually just, I mean, I experienced that this morning where my children were whining and whining and whining about something. And I, I don't even remember what it was. It was something so minuscule and from my perspective, something very minuscule and small. And my husband made a comment and he was like, he's like, do you think that's how Heavenly Father feels about me when I'm whining about this thing that I'm stressed out about right now? And I was like, well, I would like to think that Heavenly Father has more patience with us. And so he would empathize with your whining before he would tell you to stop whining. And I really do believe that. I think that's how change happens. And I think Heavenly Father knows that. I'm reminded of a quote and I found it while you were talking. Um, It was a tweet I saw a couple years ago and I actually put it in the book I wrote. And it's from a return missionary, um, Harper Don Forsgren. And it says, we as members of the church need to stop, need to focus on, um, we need to love people 
I'm going to start again, listeners. We as members of the LDS Church need to stop focusing on, quote, we need to love people because love will bring them back to the church and instead focus on, quote, we need to love people because they deserve to be loved. I love that. That's Uh, absolutely right. Yeah. Any more thoughts on question two, segment two, or just... Yeah, I mean, I just think with this acceptance before change concept, I talked about this a little bit in the podcast that you had listened to that I had done previously where... um, So my husband's a physician and he loves creating analogies. He's kind of the mastermind behind a lot of the cool analogies that I can come up with. But there's this concept when you're giving someone stitches, when someone is wounded from something where um, if you need to give them stitches, the technique used is called approximate, don't strangulate. And the idea is that our bodies are already really good at healing. They already know what to do. And the only reason the stitches are there is to keep the edges close together. But if you stitch too hard and you strangulate it, then you just end up doing damage. And I think we just need to be very mindful of when we push too hard that we're doing damage and we're undermining the healing process. The Savior is the one who heals people, not us. And so we don't even need to pretend like we're the ones that need to say the right thing to cause someone to heal. And everyone has experiences where someone did say just the right thing and it created the change in their life or motivated them to do something different. But usually those experiences are really spontaneous. And so they would kind of surprise people when they found like the answer that they were looking for. And so just keep trying to create goodness in your life. Like you might, people might look at you and see the goodness that you're offering and that might motivate them to do something different, but it's, in seeing your own efforts to just be good because being good has value, not that you are trying to influence or pressure someone into doing what you want them to do. That's a pretty powerful phrase, acceptance before change, if I got that right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Carl Rogers, I think, was the one who coined it. He was a famous um, humanist, or yeah, he, I think that's the right word, humanist therapist, um, who really just kind of talked about how much more freedom we have to grow when we feel accepted first. Talk to parents that are kind of, there's different stages of parenting. You know, all of our kids are out of the home now, but we had little kids where, you know, we were kind of in charge of their behavior largely. Um, And then they aged up into teenagers and, and making more of their own decisions, late teenagers. But talk to parents that are, dealing with children making poor choices that they know are not helpful to them now, you know, and it's, and their children aren't particularly open to hearing about their poor choices and the parents, uh, it's very difficult for parents to watch their children make choices that they're not comfortable with or feel will lead them up to a road that is not, will not bring them happiness. Just talk to those parents, how they do, what you do. Yeah. So I always tell the parents that I work with that you are responsible for the process, but you're not responsible for the outcome. And so in order to feel good about the parenting that you are offering your children, you need to think about what you value. And I'm assuming most parents value loving their children. I think that's kind of the, when we're not doing anything else, right? That's often one thing that we can do. And so I think the process, number one, is loving people. And that one is like a giant number one that says, let's do that a whole bunch before we get to any of the other parts of the process. And then when you've sufficiently loved and supported people, you do have a responsibility to warn your children of some of the consequences that might come when they're going down a certain road. Um, you would be a bad parent if you if you saw your kid running for a cliff and you just kind of sat back and just said, well, I'm just going to support you because that's just what you do. Like that wouldn't be responsible parenting. And so I do think there is value in saying, I have concerns about the way, about the choices that you're making. These are some of the consequences that I have seen other people go through. These are some of the consequences that I've experienced in my own life as I've made mistakes. I think there's a lot of value in being humble as a parent and showing vulnerability and saying, I would love to protect you from some of the mistakes that I have made. Similarly, I would love to offer you some of the great perspectives that help me and that have brought joy into my life. And I would love to see you similarly receive the blessings of those sorts of perspectives. I think you can offer that to people. Um, 
but whether they take it or not, that's where that's the outcome and you don't have control over that. And so I think you just kind of have to rest in the eternal principle of agency. I mean, if you were supposed to be able to control your, your children, we would have had a different plan of salvation and, but that isn't what we're given. And so you don't need to hold yourself guilty or responsible for the realities of our earthly plan. Great answer. I'm giving you some, some spontaneous questions now. Um, so we're still in question two, listeners, but I'm going on a little tangent. Yeah, you're keeping me on my toes. Talk to parents that go to church and um, they feel like they failed because some of their kids aren't in the church and they see other parents um, at church and their kids are all in the church. And church then can be kind of a difficult experience because they kind of look inward and think, you know, what did I not do right to not have the outcomes that other families in my congregations are having and can kind of go down a dip, an emotionally unhealthy road or just not connect as well at church because it reminds them that their kids are in a different place than other kids and they look just becomes difficult for them. I mean, this is cliche, but I think that's where patience comes in. And I also want to caveat that with referencing the quote that you said before about you love people because they deserve to be loved, not because you're trying to bring that, bring them back to church. So there's, there's a tightrope of intention that you have to walk as you go throughout this. But I think that's where that approximate don't strangulate principle comes in is we like, I love the parable of the laborers in the vineyard or the prodigal son. And it just shows me how much patience the savior has with us. And it also, I think, Sometimes we are afraid to see the value in the wisdom that comes from perhaps non-traditional church paths. However, every difficult experience that people go through will give them wisdom and will give them growth. And so if your children are wandering for a time, you can control how approximated to them that you you can't control it, but you can you can certainly do things that can keep your children feeling safe in your presence. And so as long as you are maintaining quality relationships with your children, they will still be able to see and hear and learn and watch from you and your testimony. And so just because they aren't receiving the gospel from church pews, they're still seeing it from your life. And like the labors in the vineyard of the prodigal son, like we have a long time to figure out our the things that the savior wants us to learn in this life. And I just, I mean, I think about, I love the work that Thomas Nakanki has done. He has a book called Navigating for Mormon Faith Crisis. And he also does a really good class called Transformations of Faith. And one thing about Thomas McConkie's journey is when he was in his early twenties, I think it was, he decided to, I think he moved to China and he left the church and he really just kind of dove into practicing Buddhism. And at one point he had a meeting with his grandfather who was Elder Worthlin and he was announcing to Elder Worthlin, I'm not serving a mission. And Elder Worthlin said, I know you're going to serve a wonderful mission. Like he just trusted in the value of Thomas McConkie's journey. And Thomas McConkie's journey was not kind of the typical covenant path. The thing that we think about is like what we want for the ideal but now he is back in the church and he's blessing a lot of people with his perspectives of kind of blending in some of that like Eastern philosophy and seeing how it like illuminates certain parts of our tradition that maybe we didn't think about it from, from a different perspective before. And so I would say like, don't be afraid to see the value in what your children are doing. I have a friend in the ward who were, um, refers to their children as active in the gospel, but not the church. And I just love how that person says, I know that my children are doing valuable things in the world. I see the value in what they are doing. I know that they are becoming closer to Christ and I can value their journey. And yes, that doesn't change the fact that I hope that they return to the covenant path one day, but I can also just see the value in what good people they are now. And I think that is one thing that a lot of children who have wandered from the straight and narrow, so to speak, 
they desperately want their parents to see that they still have goodness that they are doing in the world. They want their parents to see that they still are people with value. And I think the more that you can honor that and respect that, the more approximated they will stay to you. And you never know when they might feel that calling or that gravity back towards their faith tradition. And then that being said, you don't love people just as they come back to their faith tradition. But at the same time, it does make it more likely that people will feel like there's a place for them in their faith tradition. That's a really good segment. I love the Thomas McConkie story and the long view of his life and what he's accomplishing now and all the good he brought with him from that experience in China mm-hmm. and the mindfulness and how I love the word you used, illuminated. That, that part of his journey illuminated part of our faith tradition in a way that probably needs to be illuminated, the mindfulness mm-hmm. and the thoughtfulness. Absolutely. I love the way you invite parents to see their children by their accomplishments, even if they're not fully participating in the church. I know at times we hear stories of of really high-functioning adults that are not active in the church, that are contributing so much in our community in so many different ways, and their parents um, still kind of see them through these eyes of of what's their connection to the church and have kind of, and I think the kids that do better in the family relations do better, just like you're talking are ones that if the child has stepped away from the church, the parents have learned to see them in a different way with a whole different set of eyes and, and sort of just moved on. And, and to me, it's you being love. It's loving as a parent. Mm-hmm. And I think that preserves the relationship and is really healing and helpful to the child. So my parents aren't, I'm not defined by my relationship with the church in my parents' eyes. I'm defined by all the good things I'm doing in my life and the service I'm giving back to the community and the responsible person I am, assuming they are. I was going to say, I would even take it a step further and look, your love isn't defined even by the good things that you're doing. It's just defined by the fact that you are their child. I love that. They will have promised to love unconditionally throughout this life and the next life. and we don't we don't owe amazing accomplishments to anyone like we are worthy of love and infinite worth right now just how we are no matter what our life looks like uh, it's i love that and i think we've earned i think you know just because of our divine nature we're worthy of heavenly parents love that's not earned it's just mm-hmm. there it's not conditional it's not transactional it's just there. And I think we can model that as parents for our own children, because I believe that's how our heavenly parents feel about us. And they're always there. And nothing we can do can take them, take us outside of their love. I think Elder Holland has a quote where he says that there's nothing that you can do that would make you outside the reach of divine love. So that that's um, anything else on question two before we go to three? So I think three is just kind of an extension of question two. So When we talk about how important love is, what do you do about, like, what role does teaching the law or how do you balance that tension between law and love? And it reminds me a lot of another experience that I had when I was in grad school. So I had a professor when we were doing our um, training on how to do parent skills training classes. And this professor said, I'd worked with parent, like, parent teaching skills for years before I had a before I had my own children. And she said, now that I have grown children, I want to write an apology letter to every client I'd ever worked with before I had children. And she said, it wasn't the the principles I was teaching them were incorrect, but my perspective and my knowledge and my experience of how to effectively help people, help children and help them grow in a healthy way is so different now that I can see things from the other side. And so I wish I could offer an apology to everyone that I kind of offered that short-sighted perspective to. And I think that we do that same thing when we teach the gospel. I think we have the gospel of Jesus Christ is wonderful and beautiful and pure and can create wonderful goodness in the world. However, when we are putting our human handprints on it and we're trying to teach it from the perspective of someone who only is aware of this finite earth life, we aren't offering the perspective. We we can hurt 
gospel doctrines by offer, by teaching it from our limited perspective. And that's just kind of the unfortunate reality of what it means to be earthly. And I, I think a lot of the example of um, Elizabeth Smart has drawn a lot of attention to this when she talks about how she was taught the law of chastity as a teenager. Um, she would oftentimes you would hear metaphors about like underbaked cookies or wilted flowers or chewed gum or that sort of thing. And she said um, after she had been kidnapped and um, experienced such horrific trauma, she one of the first questions or one of the first thoughts that came to her mind was nobody's going to want me now because I am now damaged. And that's a really good example of saying that the law, the doctrine of the law of chastity is not the problem, but the way we taught her the doctrine of the law of chastity is problematic. And so I think there's, we need just to give ourselves, like not take ourselves too pridefully. Like we need to really give ourselves a healthy dose of humility and say the way I am trying to teach the law is limited in its understanding because I'm only looking at it from this earthly perspective. And I need to encourage people to seek their own personal revelation in their own relationship with Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ so that he, as I'm trying to teach law, that they also know that they can access the thing, the, like the corrective inspir- inspiration from our Heavenly Parents when it's needed. I love that. And I love the insights into um, we can still teach the law of chastity, but we may need, we may be learning about how to teach that in a healthier, more positive way. And I did read a lot of Elizabeth Smart stuff, and it helped me to understand some of the things we can do better as she's um, written about this and talked about this. More on just your thoughts that come, how to balance the tension between law and love. I think the most important principle is you apply the law of the you apply law to yourself and you apply love to other people. So I think we should always be seeking to ask ourselves like, Lord, is it I, is there things that, that you want me to do that I'm doing incorrectly? Are there commandments that I'm shirking? Is there service that I'm not doing? Like how can I be better and how can I become more Christ-like? But when you're looking at someone else, it's so easy to see the flaws in the way that they're doing things. And it's like the scripture, take the beam out of your eye before you focus on the moat in theirs you have no idea what their backstory is. You have no idea why they're struggling with something. And so if you can treat them with love, then they can apply the law to themselves. We don't really need to be hammering other people with the law. That was kind of an aha moment for me, Andrea, when you said, think of the law to yourself and think of love to others. And I really like that um, because it does cause me to look inward and see what can I do better to live the law, live the commandments. Mm-hmm. And to me, then that be, helps me to be able to love others better. I've always felt that one of Heavenly Parents' reasons for me to keep the commandments is so that I'll be in a better place to love others and help others. Mm-hmm. I've even thought, I wonder if Heavenly Parents really need me to keep the commandments because it somehow makes them less happy or more happy. And I like keeping commandments. I don't want to get too complicated that, but I think they're in a pretty good spot. And I don't know if my behavior can affect them too much. (laughs) I see what you're saying. But I think where they really get happy or where it really makes them, helps them is just like me as a parent is when our kids are loving each other. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes commandment keeping or keeping the law is a means to be able to bless other people's lives because my own life is in a better spot and I haven't gotten sidetracked by some of the things that could keep me, that could keep me, get me sidetracked. Now, I hope that's okay, listeners. That's a, that's a vote to keep commandments, <laughs> but I mean, it's I a vote it a to lot. keep commandments, especially to be able to position to love others and help others. When I look at it a lot, like the way that I've set up my own household is that we have rules in our house because rules in your house, create better functioning. Like I have screen time that's limited for my children. We try not to eat too much sugar because there's consequences when you watch too much screen, when you watch too much TV or there's consequences when you eat too much sugar. But when I find that my children make a mistake or they sneak into the cookie drawer or something, I'm, I, it doesn't bother me that much because like one mistake isn't going to be the end all be all of the consequences. 
but it really hurts me when I see my children being mean to each other. And it really fills me with love when my children are kind to each other. And so I think we can kind of assume that that would be similar to how Heavenly Father feels about us. Like the, he gives us commandments because they're guard, they're guardrails to keep us from the consequences that come from it. At that same point though, ultimately what affects him is how we treat each other. And I think sometimes we weaponize commandments and draw lines in the sand between people based on our their perceived commandment keeping or not. And I think, uh, yeah, I don't like anything that creates walls. I mean, Christ mm-hmm. seemed to bring down walls and not create walls. And so I recognize sometimes um, commandments that are a way to divide us or a way to measure each other. And I think love is the overriding doctrine that heals and brings us together. And that was the last commandment that the Savior left us with, was to love one another. Talk about sometimes, you know, I think in my mind growing up in the church that I've always created, no, I don't think a talk has ever said this, but somehow I've created in my mind that if I, I, there's like a hundred points of of, that I have to allocate between law and love. And if I allocate 80 to law, then I only have 20 left to love. And, you know, I've created this kind of false narrative in my mind that to fully love and follow God, I got to stop loving some of his children. Or if I love them too much, mm. I'm selling out something. And I just, I don't think that's true. I think I can do both. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're not sort of separate commandments that take from one and give to the other. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, actually I do. So I think kind of what you're speaking to is the scripture that the two great commandments is first to love God. And the second one is to love your neighbor. And so I, a lot of times people talk about, well, that first commandment then means that love God, they equate to being obey God. And I don't necessarily think it's that black and white. I think if if the first commandment was to obey God, they would just say, obey God. Like that's obey is not a word that they shy away from using in our scriptures. And so I look at it is love. God means to know God and it means to develop a relationship with him and have two way communication where he talks to you and you talk to him and you try to progress in the way that he like knows that you are capable of progressing. And so I think, in this, like, how much do you eliminate between like loving your neighbor and loving God? I mean, I, I don't think they are dichotomous. I mean, I think as you love God, you love your neighbor. And as you love neighbor, you love the more you love and understand your neighbor, the more you come to understand and know God as well. And I think that's one of the things that I love about just having a career that lets me know a lot of people really well is it's kind of given me a glimmer of what God is capable of seeing in us. Not that I'm comparing therapists to like that perspective of God at all, but I just think it has given me a chance to like really intimately know a lot of different people and get a taste for the love that Heavenly Father has for all of his children. And I think loving your neighbor ends up increasing your love for God as well, because you see what he's capable of. And it's amazing. I'm going to read a quote, and then I want to get to question four. Um, it's from Thomas Merton. It says, our job is to love others without stopping to inquire whether or not they are worthy. That's not our business. In fact, it's nobody's business. What we're asked to do is love. And this love itself will render both ourselves and our, na- and our neighbors worthy. Um, let's go to question four. How do you work through the pain when someone at church, when something said at church is hurtful. Again, I'm all about tight ropes that you have to walk carefully. And one of it is, I I love kind of, again, like this Buddhist philosophy that suffering is universal and pain is universal. Like everybody in the world has pain and people, like the pain has a large spectrum. I think there's little T traumas where the something hurtful at church might be kind of, a well-intentioned effort to comfort you, but was kind of unskilled. And so it hurt your feelings. And then there's big T trauma of perhaps like you are in a home where you are abused and the person that's abusing you is sitting on the stand and leading the congregation. 
And that's hurtful. So like seeing your pain invalidated in church is hurtful. And, and so the tightrope here is I want to say that that pain is pain and suffering is universal and you are entitled to every bit of pain and suffering and agony and grief and time and space to feel that pain as you need. Like nobody, I don't want to rush anybody through that healing process. Um, but then the tightrope on the other side of that is nobody wants to sit in their pain forever. Like at some point people want to find healing. And so as I'm talking about some of these concepts, I want to just kind of draw awareness to that tightrope. Like if you are currently in pain and hearing suggestions on like perspectives that might be more healing to you is not what you need right now. Like just don't listen to me as I talk about this part, like honor your journey and the time that it takes. Um, That being said, like I do want to offer some perspective of, of how to heal from hurt because nobody wants to be hurt forever. And so I would say like, how do you work through pain when something at church is hurtful? And I would say the first thing is it kind of depends on how close to the pain you are. So if um, if you if it's a big T trauma and it like personally really affects you, it might be that all you can do is cope and give yourself space to feel what you need to feel. You might only be able to have the capacity to reach out to people that are closest to you and just have them mourn with you. And that might be where you need to stay for a while. Um, and I think sometimes people think that this like feel your feelings is just this like new agey thing that I'm not really sure that it works. Like I, a lot of people are much more like pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get over it. But I think it's really important to realize that the savior himself actually modeled this kind of healing. And so when, um, when Lazarus died, um, Mary and Martha called Jesus and asked him or Jesus Christ and asked him to come um, help them. And Christ can do anything. Like he can raise the dead. He can heal the sick. He can, he can do anything. And Christ, I would imagine kind of knows that he has the ability to, to solve people's problems. But what he did when he got there is he gave us the easiest scripture in the world to memorize. Jesus wept. And so Christ could have come in there and said, I know what to do, Mary and Martha. Like, why are you crying about your brother? Don't you know that I know how to fix this? But instead, he took the time to weep with them. And I imagine that Christ himself, that he wasn't just faking the weeping so that he could empathize with Mary and Martha. Like he felt it too. So he knew that there was a solution, but he still had to go through the feelings first. And so I think it's really important to trust that Christ can heal our pain and trust that maybe one day you'll find meaning in your trials or you'll be consecrated in all of the struggles that you have been enduring. But you can also take the time to weep first because that's what the Savior did. I love that. Um, I just love that. I, I love the scripture Jesus wept and I love what he just taught us. Everybody can do that. I don't actually need a master's, <laughs> even though you have it and you need it for the work you're doing that gets pretty complicated. What you just shared with us, we can all do. Yeah. And it intuitively takes a little work to just, because especially if the pain originates from a, a place that is not painful for us or a place that is, you know, the greatest joy for us, like church mm-hmm. or our families or people in our lives that are healthy and wonderful us, if somebody opens up about a painful experience or we're having the opposite experience, it's often e- our natural reaction may be to defend the source of their pain that isn't our pain. Mm-hmm. And then they have to sort of prove their pain and, um, and that can be re-traumatizing versus to do what you just said is to validate pain and just sit with people in their pain. Talk more just about, you know, sitting with people in their pain and how long did Jesus weep and how do we sort of help? Because church inner pain is complicated because eventually people, if they want to return to the church, they have to sort of the pain came from the source. Generally, it's the source of healing. And maybe mm-hmm. that's true of family-generated pain or trauma that comes from a family that should be the, the safest place for someone. So you've got these, sometimes this trauma that results from places that should be deeply safe and helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, you kind of have a couple of different questions. And 
the second half I have a really complicated explanation for. <laughs> but the first half of just like how long do you weep with people? It's not your timeline. It's not your space to decide that for someone. And usually I think we I think we sometimes we just we're too impatient or we think that the pull yourself up by your bootstraps mentality is like reign supreme. And so we need people to get on with it. But I think like trust, nobody wants to be in pain forever. Nobody wants to be a victim forever. And there might be things about their life that are constantly like re-traumatizing them, or there might be complicated reasons why victim narratives make them feel like their pain is valued or is valid. So there might be some complicated stuff that maybe like are worth addressing. But ultimately, like people want to heal and the savior wants to heal us. And that takes time. And we don't get to decide how long the savior is going to weep with someone before he's going to raise them from their trials. That's a great answer. Um, I think I'm, I think lots of times we get in sort of these formula type of repentance or the formula type of it's kind of time related and and I recognize I just love your answer that it's not our decision to decide how long we sit with someone in their pain and mm-hmm. they get to self determine that and our job if we're ministering like you talked about with the change to ministering is to minister and just be with people in their pain. Mm-hmm. And I think and just sitting with them helps to, them. And that doesn't mean that you need to abandon your family and stay with someone for months and months and months, 24 seven, sitting with them in their pain. Like we can, you can set boundaries and do what you need to do to take care of yourself and your own family, but you're okay with ministering to someone in their pain and leaving with the problem unsolved. I think oftentimes we try to minister people and we want to be, we want to tie it up in a bow and move on before we're done ministering. But sometimes we just have to leave things unsolved and leave it for the Savior to finish what he needs to do. Talk more about just church-generated pain and getting over that. And do people need to take breaks sometimes if the source of pain is a church or church talk? And if we're that person or a family member, a leader, how do we navigate that? Because we're usually not used to giving people permission to sort of take a break from the church so they can kind of heal and come back to church. Just any principles there to, for in that space. I mean, absolutely. So one thing I want to kind of talk about is a lot of times when the church is your greatest source of joy, it is extremely painful to admit that it can be someone else's source of pain. And so I want to sit with anyone who is feeling that like, that is a valid pain that you're feeling to realize that something that's so important to you is hurting someone else. And I don't want to diminish the difficulty of this path that you are going to tread in order to help someone that you love, but I want to contextualize it a little bit. Um, So one of my favorite philosophies of therapy is developed by someone named Marie Bowen. And he talks about how there's a multi-generational transmission of trauma that happens through families. Like you said, families are another example of what should be our most healing and loving places can also be our most hurtful. The idea is that everyone, again, everyone has pain. And I don't say that to be trivialized or to say like everyone has pain, get over it. But I'm saying like, we all are carrying burdens and pain and problems and we are inflicting them on everyone around us and we pass it on generation to generation and the more you look back on previous generations you can see that the issue you had with your dad is the same issue your great great grandfather had with his, your with his father and that the church is not immune to that trend like that intergenerational transmission of pain and so i think it's important to realize that everyone in the church is teaching the gospel based on their level of development and understanding, but they're also teaching the gospel that in a way that is colored by their, the the influence of pain in their life and people inflict pain on people. And it, it's hard. It's a hard reality to really grasp. Um, And I think 
that's where the way that I kind of make sense of a lot of this is I love the scripture that there's opposition in all things and the church is not immune to that. Like we, there is so much goodness in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's so much goodness in our community. There's so much good intentions and love and things that people are trying to do to bring us closer to Christ and gather Israel. Like there's a lot of good intentions in that, but like there is opposition in all things we are not immune to passing on our pain to other people. And so I think as you try to sit with someone in the pain, when they, when you realize that your greatest joy is causing someone pain, you don't have to feel disloyal to the church and thinking that, Oh, like hearing their pain means that I'm not standing up for what I believe in. You're just recognizing that this is a really ugly part of being human is that we hurt people and organizations are run by people. Like we have prophets and leaders who are inspired, but they also bring like their human perspectives into the way they teach the gospel. And, and it brings wonderful, good perspectives. And it also can kind of show the areas in which they are hurting. And sometimes I think about, um, I think a lot about, the way different um, church leaders in the Quorum of the Twelve or um, in our first presidency, the way they teach different things. And sometimes you can find um, people approach the gospel from very different perspectives. So for example, I think um, President Nelson teaches a lot about the importance of like getting your house in order and being faithful and kind of being prepared to like stand at the judgment day. And he, I think he tends to teach that with like a sense of urgency. Like we need to um, repent and come closer to Christ because we never know when that day is going to come. But I also look at his life and like he lost his wife unexpectedly. He lost his daughter um, much younger than you would expect. He was a heart surgeon. So he watched people die over and over and over again. And so for him, life is short and we need to prepare to meet our savior. And we don't, we don't want to procrastinate our repentance. Like we need to be prepared at any moment because you don't know when this life is going to end. And so when you think about like when president Nelson might be like pushing you faster to repent, then maybe you're ready. When you look at it from the perspective of like, here's like a prophet who is teaching truth. Like we should be coming closer to Christ, but he's also I'm sure he misses his first wife and his daughter. And so like that pain is coming through in his message. And then I often compare that to like Elder Holland, for example, who gives a lot of talks about the labor of labors in the vineyard or the parable of the prodigal son. And I, if I remember correctly, like he has struggled with depression in his life. And so I think for him, like pain is soothed by patience. And so he's offering like potentially like a more patient, long suffering kind of view of the atonement. And I think there's a lot to be said for both. And when you can say like both of these teachings are true and there's goodness in it. And at the same time, like it is influenced by their pain. And we are, we like, we all are going to teach the gospel in a way that's influenced by our pain. It's very insightful. There's a lot of grace in that. And, recognize it's just that's very good segment um we may have transitioned this last segment but i'll just read it and you can pick up wherever you want to how can your trauma or pain interfere with your own relationship to to god and ability to access your spirituality so if you accept that everyone has pain and again there's a scale there's little t or little p pain and big p pain or little t trauma big t trauma but there are natural earthly reactions to pain and trauma and it will activate to some extent your fight flight or freeze mechanisms and that means that you are in a position where you are hyper aware of a threat and if you feel like something like you have to protect yourself from something or there's some sort of fear, you're not going to be able to relax and rest in the yoke of the savior. You're not going to be able to open your heart and let him touch you. And so I want to kind of just like kind of touch on these three different um, reactions to trauma and kind of talk about how they would impact the way that you are um, trying to access your spirituality. So if your fight response is activated, then you're going to be trying to fight it. So sometimes that looks like 
um, justifying to yourself, like, or justifying to other people why your pain is valid. So if you're hurt, um, you like want to show people why, or if you are in a faith crisis, you want to like prove to people like why your feelings of being in a faith crisis are valid. And that is making it so that you're focusing on the negative things and not letting yourself kind of rest in the comfort of the savior. And when you like what you focus on is going to be what kind of fuels your pain. So you'll, you will end up re-traumatizing yourself. Like you said, if you have to like prove to people why your experience is valid, you're going to be re-traumatizing yourself and reinforcing those narratives that maybe aren't giving, offering you the healing that you desire or other people um, might activate their flight response and they leave. And I think that's kind of where, um, you had talked about like, does taking a break make sense? And for some people it does. Like for some people, they cannot be continually inflicted by reoccurring pain. And so in order for them to heal, they might need to take a break and kind of lick their wounds and have the savior heal them before they are then able to access their spirituality again. And and I can think of like clients and family members and stuff that have done that, where they have been traumatized by different things so much, they had to take a break, but it doesn't mean that it has to stay that way forever. Or, and if they don't come back, it doesn't mean that they aren't doing a valuable life path. It doesn't mean that the savior doesn't see them for who they are. Um, But that can be an important part of it. However, there are problems that come with that flight response as well. I mean, losing your spiritual home is really hard. Like if you, um, if you enjoy the hymns, if you enjoy our scriptures, if you enjoy our community and that sort of thing, you don't want to feel like leaving is the only option that you have. And so, um, I think sometimes it's it's valuable to recognize that you might just naturally have a flight response where you tend to want to flee when things get hard. And you might want to ask yourself, am I fleeing something that I actually do enjoy and get goodness out of? And if so, is there other ways that I can, um, by drawing awareness to that tendency of mine, can I heal and still be able to partake of all the good things in the church that I do really get a lot out of? And then the freeze response to pain is when you kind of just avoid things. So like if you're in a faith crisis, you might be afraid that if you read more about, um, like if you're, if you're questioning just the way that, um, like things about our scriptures, you might be afraid that the more I read the scriptures, I might uncover something that I don't like. And then my faith crisis will get even worse and like the whole thing will fall apart. And so then at that point you just stop doing anything and you just kind of freeze and you're like, if I don't look, then at least it won't get worse. Um, and that's, I mean, it's coming from a place of valid fear where you're like, I have a lot resting on my testimony. Like I don't want to lose that. And so I'm just not going to make it worse. But at the same time, like that freeze is preventing you from accessing a connection with things that do feed your spirit. And so um, I think it's just important to draw awareness to like, those are the natural responses to pain and trauma and to say, is, is my trauma such that these reactions make sense? Like that is the healthiest way for me to engage or am I doing kind of like what I'm naturally designed to do and getting in my own way of being able to, to take on the yoke of the savior and feel his comforting guidance and to like partake in my spiritual home and find the, um, the peace that comes from engaging in the church in the way that like, that's how I've been taught to do things. And I don't want to lose that in my life. Um, and so I think it's important to just kind of be aware of those natural reactions and then decide for yourself, like what's the healthiest and how, how do you want to approach kind of that natural response? It's really helpful. And it makes me think that's very individual. And it's everybody's got to kind of write their own story in that space. And it's good to hear other stories, but I like the way you kind of say you've got to figure that out for yourself and do it in a thoughtful way. Mm -hmm. Uh, More, just any more suggestions you want to share in that area or anything else as we're kind of coming to the end of the time? I mean, I just think oftentimes when people are, when they are first aware, when they become, when they start becoming aware 
that church can be painful for themselves or for other people, or perhaps they're in a faith crisis or that sort of thing, you can start to question whether or not there's a space for you to authentically engage or not. Or am I being disingenuous if I focus on the parts of the of my faith that really fulfill me and bring me joy and uplift me? Am I harming people or am I being disingenuous by letting go of some of the things that don't feed me? And that's where I would just say, like Heavenly Father cares very much about you and what you need. And sometimes that sometimes he wants us to or he not even wants us, but like blesses us with the strength to be like good allies or good strengths to kind of help try to make um, the church more friendly or more welcoming or that sort of thing. And there's other times where you just say, I like, I just, I'm kind of burned out. Like I don't have the energy to um, be an ally or focus on what other people need. Um, but I also don't want to have the consequences of like, of losing my faith community. Like that's something that really means a lot to me. And you don't like, life is fluid. Like your capacity will change. What you can offer other people will change on any given day. You could have um, a lot of resources in which to like draw personal resilience from and bless other people. And other days you might not have any, and you just want to like relax in the yoke of the savior. I know I've been saying that a lot, but, um, and I would say like, just trust yourself and honor your journey and what you need and trust that if you, want it, the Savior can provide it for you. I love that line, relax in the yoke of the Savior. That seems pretty safe place for me. I mean, I, a lot of the people that I've talked to that have, you know, church-generated pain or trauma, it, if, if they talk about it, they recognize it's from the institution of the church and some of the things you've talked about. And they often don't feel that trauma or pain from our Heavenly Parents or the Savior. Or maybe mm-hmm. some exceptions to that, but there's this relax in the yoke of the Savior. I love the healing power of the atonement. Um, yeah, it can take away sin, but it can heal. I, th- I always mm-hmm. think trauma can be healed by a good therapist and the atonement. They're both are needed. We need Jesus and a therapist at times in our life. I like that and need both, both things. Um, here's a question that came to mind that's off topic, but it's, and maybe you've addressed this in your clinical practice. Um, sometimes an LDS couple is what I would call in a mixed faith marriage where they're both attending church and they're both committed to the church, but they're in two different kind of places with their faith in the church. And I don't quite know what labels to put on, so I won't, but they're just in different places, but have generally the same goals to stay engaged in the church. But that difference can create some tension in their marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, talk to couples that are in that space. What what would you share with them to just navigate that space? I mean, I think one. I like. I want to honor that it's hard. It's it's hard to realize that things between you and your spouse are maybe not what you thought they were. Or you might one. I think oftentimes both spouses are feeling with some feelings of betrayal. Um, one where they see their spouse kind of changing their views and the other spouse often feels like, well, why aren't you changing with me? And like, why don't you see things the way that I do? And you can feel hurt in that space. And I want to validate how hard that is. Um, but I also want to offer hope when you're done sitting in that pain, that it can also deepen your faith in a way that you'll never you'll you will never have had an opportunity to deepen in that way and it will also deepen your relationship in a way that you would never have experienced otherwise i mean it really tests your capacity to do this acceptance before change and showing how to give people unconditional love and if you can create that kind of marriage that can sustain differences wow i mean just think about like how much strength that you will be able to draw from that as you deal with other challenges that life is going to bring to you because life will bring you other challenges. And when you have that depth of connection with your spouse, it can be the most supportive and edifying thing there is. And at that same time, it will also force you out of being complacent with your faith. And so if you're kind of the one who tends to be more of the um, like all in kind of person in a mixed faith marriage, I think oftentimes 
at least for me, like I, it's easy to get complacent in your faith and you might like do the check boxes and do all the things you're supposed to do, but it's not really connecting with you on a deep level. And I think when you're forced to have that kind of difference, you really, you have to deepen your faith. Otherwise it won't survive. And, and I think when you have that kind of love with your spouse and you have that kind of love and understanding with heavenly father, it's, I mean, it's amazing. It's really going to push you to grow and develop and create things in yourself that you didn't even know that you were capable of. That's a really good answer. I sense you've clinically worked with people in this space because you have a great answer on that. I love the way you kind of validated the feelings of like, you've changed since I've married you. I, this isn't who I thought I married is you hold different beliefs within our faith or even in some mixed faith marriages, one partner's left the church, but I love the way you went positive after you acknowledged the difficulty of that and said, this could be something that you're able to, if the goal is to keep, uh, sometimes when I do meet couples in this situation, I talk about what was the, is you both share the same goals, like to keep your marriage together, to raise your children mm-hmm. together. And that can get a little complicated if one's out of the church, but if both are in the church, often they, if you go to that level, they do have the same goals and then they're able to do what you suggested. And, and then, then because they're having harder communications and stretching and being more vulnerable, the foundation of their marriage actually is it's painful for a period of time, but it's actually better long-term mm-hmm. and they have better tools. I think at times than to parent children because they've gone through this process. If they still have kids in the home that has helped mm-hmm. them in their ability to become better parents and their differences complement each other in a very healthy way. Um, as far as raising children more, th- any more thoughts for couples in this situation? Well, and also, I mean, I think you, that children piece is often where the most, the biggest source yeah. of conflict is, but think about what a gift you're giving your children to release them from the expectations that they have to reinforce your beliefs in order for you to love them because you would have already broken that with your spouse. Like you would have already learned how to do that unconditional love with your spouse and like, what a gift to give that to your children. Cause I mean, even the best parents struggle with really knowing what unconditional love looks like and offering that to their children. I love that. Um, I love acceptance before change and just love people because they deserve to be loved. How do people find you? I think you've got a website. Would you let people know your website? Yes. Yeah, so just you can how find to me find on, you and blogs and you've got lots of good content. Well, thank you. Yes. Yeah, so my website is www.andrealistrip.com. So it's A-N-D-R-E-A-L-Y-S-T-R-U-P.com. You can also find me on Instagram at AskAndreaMFT or Facebook is Andrea Lystrip Therapy. So listeners, we'll link to all that in the podcast description so you can connect with Andrea if you'd like to. Any other thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners? I'm just so grateful for this opportunity to just talk about love and unconditional love. And it's just something that means so much to me. And I really appreciate the opportunity to help create more of that in a community and a faith system that is so important to me. And I love creating more love in the world. Well, I love your work. and. and I just look at the decades. I look at where you are, Andrea, now, and um, the decades ahead of you as a church, you know, and your role in the church, your your clinical work, and your role as a wife and a mother, and um, the things you understand right now and the work you're doing is going to, has helped and will continue to help so many people. When I meet people like you, it gives me hope for the future of the church, for the future of the world, for the future of the kids being raised up. And I Listeners, I'm really positive when I think about the future of the world. There's some challenging issues that face us, but there's principles that Andrea is bringing forth that are the the path to healing and the path to bring us together. So this is Richard Osler and Andrea, I'm going to say your last name correct, Lystrup. Yep. L-Y-S-T-R-U-P, signing up on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. <laughs>